The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. This is Father Z, Father John Zolsdorf, with another podcast. In this podcast, we have a brief reflection, first of all, on the precious blood of the Lord as we begin this July, a month with particular devotion to the blood of the Lord. We also have a great interview with my good friend, the pastor of uh, Most Holy Rosary in Blackfen, the Archdiocese of Southwark in England, his hermeneuticalness himself, Father Timothy Finnegan. And we're going to talk today about liturgical silence. Today is the Feast of the Most Precious Blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the traditional day of celebrating this feast uh, with the older traditional Roman calendar, the 1st of July, and it inaugurates the whole month of July as a month dedicated to the Most Precious Blood of our Lord. Now, devotion to the Most Precious Blood certainly is very old, but it seems uh, that a feast with Mass was celebrated in its honor in the 16th century in Spain. And then uh, a great Italian saint, St. Gaspar del Bufalo, introduced it to Italy, and later uh, Pius IX put it into the universal calendar in about 1849, partly in thanksgiving for the defeat of a French army by the papal armies. So it's really uh, still a very modern or very new feast. 1849 is now all that long ago after all. Now, after the Second Vatican Council, uh, the devotion of this feast was uh, seemingly combined with its veneration, uh, with the veneration of the body of the Lord. Uh, on the feast day we call Corpus Christi, the body of the Lord, or in some places in the world, Corpus Domini. So that now, uh, the newer in the newer form of Mass, in the newer calendar, we talk about the solemnity of the body and blood of the Lord, which we still call Corpus Christi. Now, in the fullness of time, our Lord took our human nature, a perfect human nature, and that meant that the Lord had a perfect human body with bone and flesh and blood in it, into an indestructible bond with his divinity. And he came into this world to reveal us more fully to ourselves and to save us from our sins. And to do both of these things, he subjected himself to suffering and death on the cross, which was foreshadowed throughout the entire history of our salvation uh, from the fall of man onward, ever since God the Father uh, shed the blood of animals for example, to make clothing of skins for Adam and Eve before he drove them out of the garden. So the shedding of blood is tied to our, uh, to our God's care for us. 
and then all down through history, there was ritual sacrifice down through the ages, which foreshadowed and prepared us to understand and recognize the one perfect sacrifice of the Lord that would never have to be repeated, because it was performed by God himself, with God as priest and God as victim. But the one who is God-man as victim, who had real blood to shed. But this is the sacrifice that is renewed on our altars, so that when you go to Holy Mass, you are truly in the presence of the blood of Christ, the body and blood of the Lord. We speak about the Eucharist as being the presence of the body, blood, soul, and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ. And what happens during Holy Mass, the renewal of the sacrifice of Calvary, the sacrifice of Calvary, which at a historic point in time was a bloody sacrifice, being renewed in an unbloody and sacramental way upon our altars. When you are in church, you are in the presence of the blood of the Lord, the blood that was shed for you so that you could be saved. And the shedding of the blood takes place in Mass at the time of the twofold consecration, when the body and the blood of the Lord are, as it were, sacramentally separated. It's not a bloody separation as it was in that historic moment outside the walls in Calvary, Golgotha. But this is a sacramental separation of the body and the blood, showing that Christ has sacrificed himself on the cross. This is the renewal of that sacrifice. And so once again at Holy Mass, his precious blood is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. The Lord died and poured his blood out for everyone who would ever live. But not all people will elect to receive the fruits of his sacrifice. And thus, Many will be saved, but not all, even though he died for everyone. Now, as Catholics, we believe that after the consecration of the wine from grapes by the ordained priest, the entire substance of that wine changes to the blood of Christ, and that in every drop of that blood, once wine, is the price of our salvation. Every drop of the precious blood is the ransom paid for our redemption. And for us to be redeemed, he had to shed his blood for us. Man broke the friendship with God, and therefore in justice a man had to repair it. But no man is proportioned to do that all by himself. Only a man who is also God could repair that break. And that's why our Lord takes our humanity, took our humanity into an indestructible bond with his divinity so that he is perfect man and perfect God, so that he could be the perfect priest and perfect victim. And in he could perfectly shed his blood. And in the shedding of his blood, he could reconcile the world to himself. Our sins shed his blood, and his blood has in turn washed us clean. Now, his shedding of blood makes the cleansing of our sins possible, whether in 
baptism and that initial cleansing or in the sacrament of penance uh, when our actual sins, uh, the sins that we commit after baptism are cleansed. And this is something very important to remember. We are washed clean in the blood of the Lamb. In this blood that flows from our Lord, though your sins be as red as that blood, though your sins be as red as scarlet, in the blood of Christ, they can be made clean. They can become as white as snow. Your sins are taken away in the washing of the Lord's blood in the sacrament of penance. They are not just covered over, whitewashed, ignored, or set aside, or hidden away. They are removed. They are taken away. They are cleansed. They are washed away from your soul. The blood of Christ in the sacrament of penance has the power to wash your sins clean, away, gone, so that they will not be held against you in your judgment. This is something that God does. Almighty God, who is infinite, and all-powerful. There is no sin so bad that us tiny, little, finite, mortal humans can commit that is so bad that the power and desire of a God who is infinite and almighty cannot forgive. There's nothing so bad that you can do that you can't be forgiven for, provided you Go to him and you ask. And the way that he wanted you to do that is in the sacrament of penance, which is why he breathed in the apostles and gave them his own power to forgive sins, a power that would be passed down in every bishop and every priest throughout all these centuries, so that when the priest himself, when the priest who is ordained, when the priest who is alter Christus, another Christ, says those words, of absolution, after you have revealed and confessed all of your mortal sins and held nothing back, and you have asked for forgiveness because either you fear the loss of heaven and dread the pains of hell, or mostly, even more, even more perfectly, because you have harmed God, you have harmed charity, because God is deserving of love, and that's a more perfect motive to be sorry. When you hear those words of absolution, no matter what sin you have committed, it is forgiven. In his wounds you are healed. By his blood you are made clean. That is the power of the sacrament of penance. The sacrament of penance then allows you to approach Holy Communion again in the state of grace, so that you can receive in the host, or sometimes also, under the form of wine, the precious blood of our Lord, you receive the entire body, blood, soul, and divinity of the one who reveals you to yourself, teaches who you are as an image of God. And you know what I mean by that, of course, is that he shows you, for example, in his sacrifice on the cross, what true charity is, what sacrificial love is. 
uh, he teaches us all about ourselves and every word and every deed. But this is also, the one you are receiving is also the one who died to redeem you. So at Holy Mass, I would ask you to pay special attention to the preparation of the chalice. Especially during this month of July, when we are focused on the most precious blood of our Lord. Now, you've seen this happen many times, I'm sure. The priest puts little droplets of water into the wine, which is in the chalice. And hopefully the chalice is a worthy vessel. Now, this pouring of water into the wine is a symbol of, of his taking our little humanity into a bond with his greater divinity. When you put the little drops of water into the wine, what happens? The water sort of disappears. It's absorbed into the wine. It's transformed. The lesser thing is transformed into the greater thing. And so it's a sign of his taking our humanity into a bond with his divinity so that the whole thing can be transformed. Our whole humanity can be raised. We are raised in him. Now, as the priest prepares that chalice with what will become the precious blood, the smallest drop of which is worth the price of every soul who has ever lived, and also the entire material cosmos, by your ability as a baptized person, from the priesthood that you get in your baptism, you have the ability to unite your own sacrifices to that sacrifice which will be on the altar, the renewal of the Lord's sacrifice. You can unite your own sacrifices. You can unite all of your aspirations, all of your needs, all of your petitions. You can join them to those little human symbols of the little drops of water which will be absorbed and transformed into the wine, which will in turn be transformed completely and absolutely in its substance into the most precious blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. From the priesthood of your baptism, unite your sacrifice to his and give him all of your aspirations and needs and petitions and expressions of sorrow and thanks and glory to be raised and transformed in his perfect act for our redemption. Let's hear now an interview with Father Timothy Finnegan, a good friend of mine and fellow blogger from England, who has some things to say about liturgical silence. Oh, 
I'm absolutely delighted to have on Skype my good friend, Father Tim Finnegan, the great parish priest in Blackfin. And if I am not mistaken also, Father, you are Dean of Bexley. Indeed, that's right, Father, yes, for my sins. That that sounds, uh, you know, to, to my ears, uh, living on my side, side of the pond, that sounds like something out of Anthony Trollope. Well, yes, yes, sometimes people, um, you know, look at you, you're the Dean of Bexley. I wonder if I should go around on a horse, maybe. <laughs> well, if you do, you need a kappa. Now, um, I, I was reading on your wonderful blog, The Hermeneutic of Continuity, uh, this great entry that you had about uh, silence. And we talk about, uh, you know, silence in, uh, in our liturgical worship uh, very frequently. But what you did in your entry I thought was very intriguing. And I'd like to direct anybody listening to go and look at it. You posted it on June 30th, and it's called Different Kinds of Silence at Mass. And I'd like to talk to you about different kinds of silence. Uh, first of all, what prompted you to write this? Well, one of the lay people whose blogs that I read um, is called Paulinus in Hoc Signo Vinces, is his blog. And he mentioned, um, obviously, he was a little frustrated after having been to Mass. His curate there, the young priest in the parish, said, well, let's take some moments in the presence of the Lord in silence to reflect on the gospel challenge today. So he's OK to examine those areas of our lives in which we don't meet the challenge of the Lord. Yeah, great. OK, uh, to think about those things we need to sacrifice to bring closer to the Lord. OK, yeah, yeah, sure. In the silence of our hearts, you know, the guy is going on and on and on. And this fellow just wants to sit in silence and pray. But uh, the priest is talking over this silence. So. That got me thinking about silence in general. I mean, it's a mistake priests can make and, you know, I don't blame the guy and, you know, that, that's, that's, we all have our faults. But it got me thinking about silence in general and the different kinds of silence that we can have at Mass. Yeah, now, of course, there are, there are silences which seem to be, you know, packed with significance and other silences which seem to be more, well, you know, something isn't indicated to be said right now and, and, and I'm busy or the, there is no music because they're not ready to sing or something like that. So there are empty silences and there are full silences as well. Yes, I think that's true. And I think there's a difference between the older form and the newer form of the Mass. In the newer form, we tend to be saying things or having a deliberate permanent, you know, a, a, a particular pause in order to have some silence. So if there's silence apart from that, I think sometimes priests get a little embarrassed. One, one example is the, um, the prayer that the priest says before receiving Holy Communion. I've noticed that sometimes priests will say that prayer out loud or else rush it through. One wonders whether they could have actually said all the words of the prayer in the, in the time that they took, because there's something, there's, there's a kind of embarrassment about having silence during the new rite unless you're actually sat down and deliberately having a silence whereas in the older form of the mass uh, there are quite a few silences of this kind where the priest is saying prayers quietly or secreto as as we would say um, he's saying the prayers he's speaking them with his mouth in such a way that he can hear them but nobody else does they're just said quietly so as far as the lay people are concerned there is silence at the mass this happens during the canon of the Mass, uh, during the offertory prayers, most notably. And during that time, 
The people can pray either by following the prayers in their missal or by praying in their own way, uniting themselves to the mystery that's being celebrated. It, and that's rather different from either the silence where we haven't quite finished yet and we've got to get on because we can't have too much silence or people are wondering what's happening, or this other sort of silence that the powers are, as it's called in Italy, um, particularly after Holy Communion, where the priest sits down and sits in silence for a while and everybody is in silence for a while. And I think there are some liturgical problems with that because, first of all, one wonders, well, how long is he going to be silent? You know, if, I, if I'm a person in the congregation praying, I don't really know how long the priest is going to be silent. It's very much at his own discretion. It might just be for a few seconds or it might be for two minutes, which, um, you know, in a church with, with nothing else happening can seem quite a long time. So it's difficult, really, for people to pray because they don't really know how long this time of prayer is going to last. It's rather different from the silence where the priest is, for example, saying the words of the canon of the mass. And then we, we have the consecration, which takes place, as far as the laity are concerned, in silence. There's a determinate length of time while the priest is saying um, the prayers that are prescribed. So I think there are different ways in which silence impinges on the liturgy, and um, it has a, a slightly different meaning in these different cases. Mm -hmm. Yeah, now, especially uh, when we look at the, the difference between the older form of Mass and the newer form of Mass, uh, extraordinary form, ordinary form, however you want to call it, um, there are, you know, as you point out, in the older form, there, there are times of silence, especially at low mass, when the priest is simply saying the things that he is supposed to say quietly, and that imposes a certain measure of silence. Um, the silence, the moments designated for silence in the Novus Ordo, is, you know, for example, brevia momenta silencii, as it were, the short, um, a, you know, a few short moments of, of silence, are imposed. For example, uh, there can be silence here if there hasn't been silent before, right? But there is one point of of, yes. of silence that we can we could maybe look at for a moment, and that's I believe it's still in the rubrics of the new form of mass that after the priest receives holy communion by means of the of the host, he is supposed to pray a little bit in in silence, aliquantulum. Isn't that is that still in there? I wonder. No, in fact, interestingly enough, it's not in the newer form of the Mass. It's there in the older form. After the consecration, after the priest receives the sacred host, he pauses for a few moments in silence um, to meditate upon the Most Holy Sacrament. Then, for example, if the priest was saying Mass and nobody was going to communion from the congregation, after he had received the chalice, he would go straight off to the, um, to the ablutions. In the newer form of the Mass, what's um, prescribed is that once the distribution of communion is finished, then, if appropriate, pro opportunitate, the priest and the faithful spend some time praying quietly. So there's a, there's a certain kind of movement we can see here from um, you know, general principles which applied to the reform of the liturgy under Pope Paul VI, um, the joining of the priest and people together, not making so much of a distinction between the priest and the people. I think it's probably a pity that the priest isn't um, advised or instructed after his own communion immediately to spend a few moments in silence. But the fact is he isn't in the in the newer um, form of the Mass. The idea is that after the distribution of communion is completely finished, then, if appropriate, pro opportunitate, the priest and the faithful spend some time praying quietly. 
And it says uh, in this case, per aliquot temporis spatium, so for some time, for, for some space of time. And that's really an innovation, I think. And that hasn't found a place in the liturgy before, that there would be a, a sort of extended period of silence. And this, as I say, is a problem because it's entirely at the discretion of the priest how long that silence lasts. Some priests may feel, well, it's much more devout to have three or four minutes silence, perhaps. Um, but still, the people in the pews don't really know how long this is going to last unless they go to Mass every day and it's the same priest and they get used to it. Um, it can vary very much from one priest to another. In my own case, um, you know, I try to observe the rubrics, whether I celebrate the older or the newer form of the Mass. And with the newer form, what I tend to do, um, really to try and help people and to, to make sure that their expectations are, are clear, um, I do the, the purification very carefully at the altar, as it's called in the newer form. And it says you can use water and wine. So I basically do the do the purification as one might do in the older form of the mass. So that leaves a little time of silence for people while I'm carrying out that particular sacred action. And then afterwards, so that there is a, a pausa, as the Italians call it, um, I say the prayer placiat tibi. It's one of the prayers from the old missal, um, which I say as a as a devotion during the mass, during that particular time of silence. And it acts as a, a way of measuring that time of silence. So people know that it's not going to be too long. Um, obviously, they have the opportunity to pray quietly after Mass, but that there will be a reverent silence um, after communion. Yeah, now that sounds like a, a very a very good uh, practice. Uh, one of the things about, for example, sitting down after a bit uh, and you know, be, having silence for a little while, is that in, in a parish setting, um, I, we have to also be very practical, too. Number one, you raise the issue of, of people don't know how long this is going to last, which itself can be distracting and therefore really counterproductive as far as what you're trying to accomplish with the silence. And number two, you know, I mean, people have, uh, people have children at home that they have to cook for, and there are, there are ways in which, you know, it, th there's a tension between wanting to give them an opportunity to within the sacred space of the church to separate themselves from worldly cares and to be with the Lord for a little bit. And then they have to go back out and attend to their, their duties because they really do have lives out there and things to take care of. Yes. It's very interesting to, to read the life of St. Philip Neri. Everybody knows that St. Philip Neri, when he said his private mass, after he received the sacred host, he would remain in silence for ages and he'd be in ecstasy, an ecstasy of prayer and contemplation with Almighty God. And it, amusingly enough, you know, the server would sometimes just go off and, you know, have a cup of coffee or something and pop his head in now and again to see if St. Philip had stopped kind of being in ecstasy, whether you know, he could get on and do the ablutions or not. But the same St. Philip Neri himself, and he instructed the priests at the Chiesa Nuova, said that they shouldn't take longer than half an hour over the daily mass. Because, exactly as you say, people have lives to lead. They need to know how long Mass is going to take. And you know, they need, in many cases, people can fit in Mass. You know, they, they try to do so conscientiously at the beginning of their working day or you know, some, some space which they can provide to go and be with the Lord and to receive Holy Communion at Mass. And St. Philip Neri was very conscious of this. And he said, no, you, you mustn't be self-indulgent when you celebrate Mass and have, you know, have lots and lots of pauses against the, the rubrics of the old mass, 
uh, nor should you spend too much time after communion in silence, um, after your own communion. He said, you must allow the people to get off and get on with their duties, otherwise you may put them off from attending Mass. So St. Philip Neri is an example of a, a pastor who himself was, was very, very devoted to the Mass and where he was free to do so in his private Mass would be in his devotions for ages and ages. But when it was a concern of, of people coming to a publicly scheduled Mass, he wanted the priest to make sure that the people could be fairly clear about how long Mass would last. And you raised there the issue of self-indulgence. And I I think that, uh, you know, in fairness, most of the, the priests out there who would, you know, want to, you know, sit down after this moment or that moment and let there be silence in church, they're not, you know, doing that out of self-indulgence for the most part. They're they're doing it because I think they want to, you know, add some silence or give people a chance to contemplate this or that. Uh, but in your in your blog entry, one of the points that you made about uh, you know, the priest sitting down and having silence after a moment so that people could contemplate. You, you, you talked about the moment of the sermon, and there are uh, priests who will indeed uh, sit down and have silence after the sermon, in which people are supposed to probably think about what they were saying, what, what the priest just, priest just said. But what you did is you, you made a point, and I, I very much resonate with this, especially after reflecting on uh, what Benedict XVI was stressing in that post-synodal exhortation, uh, Sacramentum Caritatis, about the Ars Celebrandi, the art of celebrating the priest, where Benedict talked about priest getting himself out of the way so that the, the sacred action of the liturgy could be the fo- people's focus. And what you did in your blog entries, you said, um, you know, rather than have, you know, people thinking about, you know, my wonderful words after the sermon, you prefer to go right on to the sacred action, uh, echoing what St. Augustine, you know, talked about, uh, you know, conversi ad dominum, let's, you know, having turned around to the Lord, let's get her turned around and direct ourselves toward the Lord. Rather than my words, let's go on to what the Lord, the real actor of the liturgy, is doing. I thought that was a very good point. Could, could you just expand on that a little bit? Yes, yeah, certainly. It, it's an interesting phrase, conversia dominum. Um, you know, people might wonder, what, what's that all about? Because conversi, of course, is, is a participle, and it means having been c- converted to the Lord. It, in fact, is the beginning of a prayer which was composed by St. Augustine um, in his uh, Sermon 183. You can find the text. Um, and it's basically asking that having been turned to the Lord God, that then we should give him thanks. And with our whole hearts and souls, we should beseech for his mercy, that we should beg him to hear our prayers and so on. So St. Augustine is directing people immediately after his sermon to the Lord. So from looking at the priest where he's giving his own words and the sermon, of course, in the in the newer form is... Um, very much a part of the liturgy. That was one of the aspects of liturgical reform, that the sermon was to be considered an integral part of the liturgy. Interestingly, in the older form of Mass, it's not considered as a part of the liturgy. The priest removes his maniple to give the sermon. And I think that's quite a good reminder to us that in the sermon, the priest is using his own words. He should pray to the Lord and try and speak um, what the Lord has asked him to speak, and particularly, of course, what the Lord has 
taught us through his holy Catholic Church, we should be true to the magisterium of the church. Nevertheless, in the sermon, the priest has composed or is extemporizing his own words. In the rest of the mass, ideally, of course, the priest is reading out and praying the words that are in the missal. He is trying to say the black while he does the red, you know, that, that he's, he's following it's a ni- the text. Nice turn of phrase, Father. Nice turn of phrase. Yes, because <laughs> yes, if you save the liturgy, you save the world, of course. So, yeah, of course, yes. So the, I like the way the you priest in, the, in that. Is, <laughs> so the priest is in the rest of the Mass. He's, he's reading prayers from the missal, praying them devoutly. In the sermon, he's using his own words. And so at the end of the sermon, St. Augustine would effectively be saying, OK, that's enough of me. Now let's turn to the Lord. And I think that's that's a very wise way of thinking. The priest should try and provide people food for their souls, should try and expound the Holy Scriptures, expound the doctrine of the church and so on. But ultimately, he's doing so in order to draw people closer to Christ. And Christ is present in the liturgy. So ultimately, what his sermon is meant to be doing is drawing people into the sacred liturgy. And so what better could we do than turn to the Lord? I don't, of course, deprecate priests. I, I, I made a slightly flippant remark, you know, that um, at the conclusion of my sermon, rather than sit and ponder my words of wisdom, however brilliant they may be, I feel it better to direct people to the action of God. Um, of course, sometimes if a, if a priest chooses to have a time of silence after his sermon, of course, maybe from, from very laudable motives to encourage people to to ponder the word of God. It's just that I feel that maybe that can be mistaken as, as pondering the words of the priest and that the words of the priest are best directed to the heart of the mystery that we're celebrating, which is the, the real presence of all the mysteries of Christ and of Christ himself. Yeah, do you think that perhaps maybe a better moment for silence would be immediately after the gospel and then before the sermon? Well, perhaps it would be. I, I'm a, a little sceptical about having silences during the liturgy of the Word. It's not my practice to do so in the parish, and I think most parishes um, that would be true. There are some which do, um, and if people get used to it, uh, then I suppose perhaps it, it wouldn't be so intrusive. But I think it, my own my own opinion is that in a parish setting, it may be not the most opportune thing to do. Because, again, people are, are simply wondering, well, how long is this going to last? When are we going to get the next reading? When's he going to start his sermon? Although I was I was corrected by another priest of my diocese who wrote a comment on my blog saying that um, he uses these silences during the Liturgy of the Word in his parish and they work very well. So I'm perfectly open to accept that in some cases they can work and that some priests make a good job of them. Um, as I say, I'm, I'm rather sceptical about the... You know, the four different pauses that are, that are suggested as possible during the liturgy of the word. Yeah, and I know there is also a, a tension uh, because uh, perhaps it was uh, perhaps it was already foreseen at the time when they were experimenting with a new order of mass and all that that there wouldn't be any time for silence in it because the newer form of Mass seems to be talk, talk, talk all the time. And so they very self-consciously had to work those moments in there in order to defend silence to a certain degree. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. And Cardinal Ratzinger, in the spirit of the liturgy, um, he comments on how he had for some time been making the suggestion 
that maybe sometimes, or we could allow as an option, that the canon or the Eucharistic prayer of the Mass could be said quietly. And he comments on how people found this a, an outrageous suggestion, you know, that, as though this was against the spirit of Vatican II or something. But I think that it would be a very welcome option in some cases. You see, we, we have these prayers in English, and we're soon to have a, a much better and more accurate English translation, of course. But still, whether we use the words gibbet, wrought, or ineffable or not, still there are many phrases there which are quite difficult phrases and need pondering. And it's not as though we're going to immediately have an intellectual understanding of every word that's said during the course of the Mass. And there's an awful lot that's read out. The first 20, 25 minutes of the Mass consists of people sitting, listening to various readings, the, you know, the readings and the psalm, which is very often done as another reading, uh, the priest's sermon and then the bidding prayers. But people are listening to words fired off at them for, for a, a lengthy period of time without the opportunity or the freedom to participate in the Mass in these various different ways. I'm all for people participating in the Mass and for um, uniting themselves with the mysteries, but I think there are different ways of doing that. And so if it were an option to um, for the priest to read the canon or Eucharistic prayer of the Mass quietly, I think for many people that would be a great relief. And I think it's one of the principal reasons why people who prefer the older form of the Mass, particularly like that form of the Mass. See, at the low Mass, of course, the whole canon is silent. In the sung Mass, uh, the, the high Mass or the Missa Cantata, still the consecration is in silence, and much of the, the words after the consecration, the choir may still be singing the Sanctus up until the, the point of the consecration, but still that central part of the Mass is a time of great devotion. It, it's it's a time when people can focus and concentrate in prayer. And I think it would be a good opportunity for people to have that available to them rather than being talked, about, talked at all the time. And I suspect that when young people say the Mass is boring, as adults we're accustomed to correcting them and trying to explain that, well, you know, if we understood the mysteries of the Mass properly, if we understood what was really going on, we'd never find it boring. I've recently wondered whether maybe these young people have some slight justification um, if they're being read at for 25, 30 minutes non-stop, texts which they don't immediately understand, and not all the texts of the scriptures are immediately accessible, but they've read this prose at them you know, for, for a long time. I wonder whether maybe they have some justification, whether we might be better sometimes just to, just to pipe down a bit and to have some of the prayers of the Mass at least read quietly so that people have the option to, to follow those prayers in a book or to pray quietly in their own words, associating themselves with the mystery that's being celebrated. Yeah, you, you are prompting in me uh, all sorts of interesting ideas here. Let me just toss one more thing out towards you. Um, you know, there are those silences which are, are full of meaning, right? And then there are yes. those times when you have a lot of things coming at you, so much so that maybe it doesn't mean anything at all after a while. Uh, in theater, there is an old mm -hmm. phrase, uh, everything is nothing. You know, if it's always loud, you tune it out. If everything on the stage is red, then you start to tune it out. Um, there is another kind of a silence, however, which can occur 
when there is actually sound, or I don't want to say noise, but at least sound going on. And I wonder if maybe Gregorian chant isn't one of these things which can fill a church with sound and silence at the same time. Oh, absolutely, yes. I think that's that's quite right. Um, one of the problems with sacred music, of course, is that in some cases there's an attempt to engage people in a, a, a syncopated rhythm or a popular tune or you know harmonies going very simply up and down the scale so that it, it's rather like a, a pop song or something people would listen to on the radio. Whereas a Gregorian chant has that timeless quality and you know, a melodic um, complexity that enables people to to sit quietly and to participate by listening. This is something that Pope Benedict and Pope John Paul II have both emphasized, that participation at the Mass can be active while we are listening, if we're listening attentively. And we can listen at various levels. Um, somebody who is an accomplished Latinist can listen and, and know the words that are being said and not have need of a translation. Somebody else who's has uh, a fluent, fluent literacy, can read the texts in a, in a double column booklet or something and you know, see, well, while they're singing this in Latin, well, I know it means this in English. Another person can simply be aware of the beauty of the music, know that praise is being given to God and that we're preparing to offer the most holy sacrifice of the Mass and simply be there with, with Almighty God in the way that the man was in, in the Church of the Cure of Ars. And the curie asked him, you know, what was he doing when he was there in the church so long? And he said, I just look at him and he just looks at me with the beautiful melodies of Gregorian chant or in, in some cases with polyphony. We could, we could say that we are in a certain sense listening to the beauty of God as far as we can um, attempt to reach out to it here on earth. Father, you have um, really done, I think, everyone a great service, uh, not only with your blog in general, but with that last post uh, on silence. And I, I wholeheartedly recommend uh, to people to go to the your uh, June 30th uh, entry on silence and uh, take a look at it and take a look at the comments and uh, participate in the conversation there if, you, if they want to, but also uh, to uh, maybe take stock of uh, what they are thinking about the silence and how silence is being used in their parishes. And uh, if maybe uh, uh, it, it's being, you know, there are times for silence which are being offered uh, to them and they are perhaps not making, you know, the best use of them, but perhaps just to reassess uh, that particular aspect of their active participation in the uh, in our liturgical worship. So, Father, thank you very, very much for your time out of your busy schedule as a parish priest. I know you have an awful lot of things to do, but uh, the listeners to this podcast, I think, will be very grateful for your comments. Well, thanks very much, Father. It's great to talk to you, and I wish all the best for you and for all your listeners and your blog readers.
with that, I'm going to wrap this up. Please join us on the blog at WDTPRS.com. That's easy to remember, Whiskey Delta Tango, Papa Romeo Sierra.com. You can also Google Father Z or find me at FatherZOnline.com, F-E-T-H-E-R-Z Online.com. I welcome your participation. You can also leave voicemail feedback. I have voicemail phone numbers for you to use on the left sidebar. There's a phone number you can call in the UK and a phone number you can call in the United States. And you can also use Skype. The Skype address, of course, is Whiskey Delta Tango, Papa Romeo Sierra. Uh, and watch uh, the blog, of course, for more posts on these podcasts. And in the meantime, until next time, please pray for me as I will for you. <laughs>